and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a Scranton girl. One month after Election Day, we're sitting down with Congresswoman Susan Wild. Before and certainly after the redistricting, this was an incredibly, incredibly purple district. When you hear about the term battleground or frontline, Pennsylvania's 7th is what those D.C. talking heads are referring to. While our listeners in and around Philadelphia couldn't vote in the Lehigh Valley, they got very, very familiar with this race. The ads were relentless morning, noon, and night. This was the most expensive congressional race in Pennsylvania history. With about 51% of the vote, Congresswoman Wild, she won her third term and declared victory at 2 a.m. the morning of Wednesday, November 9th. So I'm really looking forward to hearing directly from her about this historic victory. Congresswoman Susan Wild, welcome to my kitchen table and belated congratulations on your victory. Thank you so much, Ari. Good to be with you. So I want to take listeners back. You were first elected in 2018 to a district uh, that included Monroe County, and you now have been reelected to a district that includes a good chunk of Carbon County. So what was going through your mind in February or January as the redistricting process was dragging on and you learned that your district then was going to radically change? Well, I have to tell you, just the dragging on of the redistricting process was a bit of a nightmare because, of course, nobody could really plan until you knew what your new district lines were going to be. So that that in itself was was stressful. And there were a lot of little side dramas, not for me, but, you know, within Pennsylvania about what the lines were going to look like. And that was very distracting and kind of disconcerting. After we got the new map, my the very first thing that I did was sit down with my chief of staff and talk about how we were going to approach the new areas. I was very sad, by the way, to leave behind most of Southern Monroe County. I had really developed strong relationships there. Uh, we had done a lot of work in Southern Monroe. And so to this day, I will I miss those people. They are going to be ably represented once again by Matt Cartwright, but I, it, I was sad to lose them. But really, my focus was on, you know, how do we p- become acquainted with Carbon County and how do they become acquainted with us? I was not a stranger to Carbon County. When I was a lawyer trying cases, I had tried a number of cases up there at the courthouse. But, you know, I've been away from my law practice now for almost four years. And quite honestly, haven't, I don't think I've been up to Carbon County up until we got the new map. So we sat down and sort, and and of course, it's complicated for you, for your, just so your listeners understand, you can't go in as a quote unquote member of Congress to a new part of your district when you haven't yet been elected for that part. I mean, you can go in and you can go in on the political side, but you can't go in and you know start holding town halls the way I could in the rest of my existing district because you don't yet represent it. So that makes it a little more challenging too. So what we did was we quickly identified some key people in, in Carbon County and reached out to them, got to know them. They were very, very gracious about introducing us around. We did some business walks up and down Main Street and Broadway and 
introducing myself. You know, I went to things like uh, Democratic uh, dinners up there and that, and that sort of thing. And um, sort of did what, what you do everywhere. Now, one of the things that I should mention is that many of the people in Carbon County work for an employer located in either Lehigh or Northampton County, which, of course, are the major counties in my district. And so as a result, I felt that many of them would at least have some awareness of me and the work that I had done. The two major hospital networks recently built satellites in Carbon County. We've certainly worked very, very closely with the hospitals. So I didn't feel like it was unsurpassable. I just knew that there was a lot of work that needed to be done. I'll just remind listeners, we had a uh, deep discussion with your predecessor, Charlie Dent, who saw his uh, district lines radically change in 2012, and then a separate discussion with Jason Altmeyer from out west, and they both had unique perspective on exactly what you talked about. How do you start engaging voters who are not uh, constituents? I want to go further ahead to another milestone on the campaign trail. Certainly, you won the primary. It was uncontested. Your opponent had a contested primary. We don't have to uh, to talk about that. But uh, the summer was marked by the Dobbs decision. And right. I would just be curious if, you know, was there a change as you're just meeting folks at farmers markets and at the doors? Uh, I mean, what was kind of the mood before, during and after that decision? So I have to tell you, I was... a as alarmed as I was by the Dobbs decision, I was a little bit surprised by the impact that that it had on electoral politics this year. I don't think I expected it to be regarded as critically as it turned out to be. I heard about it everywhere, and I do mean everywhere. Interestingly, we did focus groups in our campaign, and focus groups by definition include people of every political stripe. You don't want to only you know, poll Democratic voters if you really want to put your your finger on the pulse of a purple district like mine. And those focus groups really made me realize just how angry people were about the Dobbs decision. Mostly women, but a lot of men and among the youth groups. And that's where I was really concerned that they wouldn't have a whole lot of concern because, you know, college students have never lived in a pre-row world. And and I I was worried that they wouldn't understand that it was, you know, really a big deal. But boy, they got it. And, you know, I, I often said to people, I heard about it from older women a lot, women who did live in that pre-row world and either themselves or had or knew somebody who had had an illegal abortion and the, the you know, tra- the tragedy of that in some cases. And they had one perspective. Younger people's perspective was more focused on how dare the government think that it can tell me what to do with my body. And by the way, that was not just something I heard from women, young women. It meant young men seemed to be equally outraged about it. And uh, I've, was, I've definitely seen polling data to back that up. Yeah. And that was just that was a learning experience for me. I, I mean, a good learning experience that that they were really focused on this issue. So I I do think that it, it um, changed the course of electoral politics nationally, the Dobbs decision. I don't know in my district that that I, I never viewed that as the linchpin to winning. And I ran my campaign very much that way. I did not spend a whole lot of time talking about it. First of all, it was already out there in the national narrative. Secondly, 
I felt that it was really important for me to focus on kitchen table issues. Although, I mean, a lot of people will make the case, and it's true that the uh, the right to reproductive freedom is is a kitchen table issue, but that you know that requires a little more of an esoteric discussion. So I I spent a lot of time focusing on prescription drug pricing, of which I'm proud to say I, I think I'm a leader on that issue, and my my district knows it to be my signature issue. So I spent a lot of time talking about the work that I had done and the successes that we had had in that area. And I also spent a lot of time talking about manufacturing in the CHIPS Act. As you well know, our district is uh, very heavily rooted in manufacturing. It is the source of many, if not most, of the really great career jobs that people can get and stay in the Lehigh Valley, you know, if people don't want to have to move to, you know, if you love the Lehigh Valley and you were born and raised there, there was a time when people left because there were no real good jobs to be had, but that's less and less the case. So I focused on those two issues as my one and two issues, not to say that I ignored reproductive rights. I just didn't think that it was necessary for me to dwell on it. So let me ask you a uh... You know, in July, August, the dog days of summer when it's 90 plus degrees and full humidity and campaigns really need every volunteer they can get. I mean, was there an uptick in volunteers after that decision? I mean, was there a noticeable kind of buzz? (laughs) I mean, certainly amongst the fundraising. Uh, In terms of uh, additional grassroots activists. I commented so many times this summer about my admiration for the legions of volunteers that we had knocking doors as far back as June, July, you know, which seems early to be knocking doors, but we were doing what they call deep canvassing and which I didn't really know much about until I was educated by my field organizer. I have to stop here for a minute and just say I had the most amazing campaign team and would take every one of them back in a heartbeat. And our field team in particular was just extraordinary, the work that they did. But anyway, going back to the summer, we were knocking doors. We were doing deep canvassing and making, and then also, of course, doing a lot of voter registration, particularly among those all important college students that um, often come into the Lehigh Valley being registered in some other state and, you know, convincing them to re-register in Pennsylvania. We'll definitely talk about the student vote in a moment. I want to go back. You used the term more than once everywhere and referencing um, uh, the focus groups and just uh, hearing conversations. Um, I think it's important for listeners, and increasingly we have listeners well beyond Pennsylvania. There's just such diversity uh, within these three counties. And if you could speak to you know how you and your team were designing both an official schedule and a campaign schedule so that you're there in incredibly urban precincts, incredibly rural precincts, suburban, exurban with McMansions. Sure. And with the, so how, how do you, how do you, how do you build a schedule each week? I appreciate that you recognize that. And of course you're a native of the Lehigh Valley and you were in the Lehigh Valley before I was, I got there in the late eighties, but maybe you weren't there before me, but anyway. I'd have to go back and look, I, whatever my kindergarten was. So 86, I think. Okay. So you got there a year before I did. And I can the, tell you though, Congresswoman, I, I don't remember much from age four. Yeah. Or five, so. Well, all I will say is that the, the district has diversified tremendously. And right now I'm just going to talk about the Lehigh Valley, which is not the entire district, but the Lehigh Valley has diversified in an amazing way over the last 30 years. 
I mean, obviously, we've got rural areas, we have suburban, ever-growing suburban areas, we've got urban areas, but also the population itself. It, we have gone from being what was a generically Caucasian area to being an area that has a really vibrant interwoven fabric of ethnic communities, the Muslim community, the Indian community, the Ukrainian community, the, the Syrian community has long been in Allentown. So I'm not going to suggest that that's a new community, a, a very large Puerto Rican population in Allentown, more than a majority of um, Allentonians are Hispanic. And so I really think that what we did on the campaign side mirrored what we had been doing for the last four years on the official side. And, and by the way, I always recognize room for that there's room for improvement. It's one of the things that I aim in my, my next term to do even better than we've done. But to make sure we have always tried to make sure that we are not just acknowledging, but reaching out to every community. Every And by that right now, I'm talking about the uh, community, different ethnic communities and that kind of thing. Recognizing that although they have differences, they all, many of their issues are the same as they are for every other American, you know, public safety, healthcare, higher education, that kind of thing. But they all have unique issues too. And so I actually first recognized that in my 2018 primary. And I often say, you know, I had a six-way primary. It's really tough to run in a six-way Democratic primary when you all have almost identical positions on things. And how do you convince voters to choose you over the other five? Um, and one of the things that I personally set out to do when I was, it was still a fledgling campaign and I didn't have this wonderful team behind me yet, was I set out to identify those those communities and reach out to them and get to know them and go to their events and go to their socials and and talk to them. And I really think I did a pretty damn good job of it all by myself back in 2018. And we've built upon that. We have really built upon that. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty proud of that. And the Lehigh Valley, I consider to be you know, a very diverse, I mean, I, the communities I just identified, I don't mean to by any means to suggest that they're the majority or anything, but they are substantial. They have influence. And by the way, those communities that consist of immigrants by and large are highly engaged in the electoral process, almost to a person. They, they, you know, those who have become citizens treasure their right to vote they want to hear from candidates. You know, the Indian temple had a big candidate night, as did the mosques. And, you know, it's, I think it's really important to recognize those people. And I felt in 2018 like they really had not been reached out to enough or asked to participate in the process. And it turned out I was right about that. You certainly were. And I, I just need to I make a plug for uh, our previous two episodes. One was with uh, Dr. Arvind Venkat, the first uh, Indian American in the State House, so with his campaign manager and talking about everything that's happening in the North Hills of Pittsburgh. And then the other was with Matt Cartwright's campaign manager, who's a young Indian American. Uh, and it's just, I think, the beauty of our democracy that uh, mm -hmm. these naturalized citizens can get so involved. Um, I, I, I wanted to. A great thing. You mentioned uh, public safety was the term, and uh, the other side, certainly Dr. Oz's campaign, not that we need to talk about him anymore, he's moved back to New Jersey, but they were talking morning, noon, and night about crime. And I'm curious to what extent that was coming up and, and how you were messaging that. 
I recognized it as a very important issue on an individual level for people, particularly people who live in the higher crime areas of the district, Allentown, Easton to some extent, some parts of Bethlehem. And But I wouldn't say it was a huge campaign issue. I, as I recall, I don't remember any GOP attack ads on me stemming from public safety issue. There may have been one, I don't know. But I, I think there was an attempt made several times to connect me to Fetterman because, of course, they were going after Fetterman big time for his role on the Board of Pardons. And so, you know, by extension, they wanted to attach me to Fetterman. I think people in my district recognize that I've never been a defund the police elected official. In fact, if anything, I've tried to work very hard with the police, have voted for funding increases, and in in fact, have just recently reached out to the Allentown police chief. We want to talk to him about some police academy issues that they they need priorities that they need to keep taken care of and that kind of thing. And in my quite honestly, in my legal career, I represented police departments a lot. So and and the while the individual voters may not be aware of that, the police departments are definitely aware of that. So I would say that to the extent that people feel vulnerable or unsafe, it's always a campaign issue. And there are certainly areas where we see that unfortunately or fortunately or unfortunately by and large a lot of the gun violence in Allentown in particular tends to be drug related gang related not as much random gun violence as you see in some other areas we've thus far been fairly I mean we see some of it you know the case that comes to mind right away is the poor fellow at the Wawa on Route 100 get filling up his truck for work and getting shot at five in the morning by a random stranger that obviously we have those kinds of things, but not to the extent that we've seen it elsewhere in the country. I hope it stays that way. So, you know, I would say it wasn't in the top five in terms of controversy in my campaign. I would just say, thank goodness we finally have a Senate confirmed ATF director on the job. And uh, for anyone who thinks we should defund right. the FBI, they're doing incredible work across the Commonwealth. And, it, it, and I have to lines. tell you, it, I have to tell you, it just boggles my mind that that's a, a, a GOP talking point. But, I, you know. You mentioned the city of Bethlehem, the city of Easton. Yeah, it was just sky high turnout. I mean, in some cases, precincts actually had like they were breaking presidential numbers. It, be honest with listeners. I and mean, were you expecting this kind of record turnout in, in the heart of Bethlehem and the heart of Easton? Yes, as to both of those communities, I was. I know both of those communities very, very well, have spent a lot of time. I have to tell you, I'm incredibly proud of the political engagement in Pennsylvania 7. It all started around 20. I mean, we have gone from being just kind of an average political participation area to being incredibly engaged and participatory in the political process. I give people on the ground all the credit in the world for that. These organizations that came up in 2017, and there are a lot of small ones that aren't even wouldn't even be known to your listeners, as well as larger ones, county based and that kind of thing. But and the momentum has remained. So, in answer to your question, in both Bethlehem and Easton, I I know those districts, and I know or those parts of my district, and I know 
how engaged they are. And so I was not surprised by the record turnout. We still have a lot of work to do in Allentown, of course. The turnout there needs to improve. So, I, you know, anecdotally, as we have upward of 15,000 listeners, I know some of them are these out-of-state volunteers who, uh, who, who come up from Maryland or New Jersey uh, and devote so much time. And then we certainly have a lot of students. I want to go back, probably seems like a year ago now, but when the First Lady came to Muhlenberg College and you know, what was when you got that news that she was going to come and spend the final hours of uh, the campaign season uh, in the district, uh, what was going through your mind? And, you know, generally, how were you looking at turning uh, a college like Muhlenberg up to, you know, north of 50 percent turnout? I was pleased that she was coming to my district. Her her focus on education and her own experience as a college professor made a college setting, obviously, completely it fit. Muhlenberg, well, I, I I won't single it out, but I, among the many colleges in my district, except to say that Muhlenberg really seems to have a very, very politically engaged student population. And um, we just, we had a fabulous rally at Muhlenberg with, and it wasn't just students, by the way, lots and lots of people from around the district came. We had, we were at fire code capacity. We could not put another person in that room. Fortunately, we just managed to get everybody in that wanted to get in, but it was it was insane. And it, it really made me, it, it's, I don't remember exactly what the date but it was, but it was just a few days before the election. And it made me realize that we were going to get really good turnout, that people were really, really engaged. And they there were people that were just delighted to come see Joe Biden. So you've been super generous with your time. Two questions, one on a, a political and then one looking ahead to uh, the next Congress. I think as you move west of Muhlenberg into the suburbs, just so much changes over the years. We talked about the late 80s. I mean, a lot of these places used to be farmers fields. We did see a lot of those precincts go blue, albeit lightly, but these are generally represented by Republicans. Uh, uh, and just kind of curious, what What's it going to take? Uh, I use this term deep canvassing that's difficult when you're sitting on acre or two acre lots of land, but what's it going to take to turn those suburbs much, much bluer? I don't know that I have a, a magic formula for that. I will say what a lot of people don't recognize is that the Lehigh Valley is the fastest growing region in Pennsylvania. And a lot of that is people who are moving in from out of state and COVID accelerated that. We had, we had an incursion of people from New York and New Jersey who discovered what a great place it is to live and ended up settling there. And I, th- I expect that to continue. Some of that is not welcome by Lehigh Valley natives because it also has the side effect of driving up housing costs and that kind of thing. As people from more expensive areas move in, they're willing to pay more than, than we're used to paying in the Lehigh Valley. Having said that, I do think that has something to do with the bluing of the suburbs. And I mentioned our ethnic communities before, you know, Upper Mukunjee has a very, very vibrant immigrant population, uh, large suburban developments that are predominantly Indian or Muslim. And so I think that's in part the reason for it. And the other part is that I think, I mean, I will say, I, I think Dobbs had something to do with the sub, suburban areas going bluer this um, this election year. But I also think that a lot of the issues that I work on and that I will continue to run on 
have appeal cross section appeal. I'll say against across party lines. You know, manufacturing that's not a Democratic or a, a Republican issue. You know, and so I think that if we can focus, at least in my, I plan to continue to focus on those issues that really matter to people, regardless of their party affiliation. You know, when I first started running, the number one thing I heard about that I really hadn't had as much awareness about was the prevalence of diabetes and and the price of insulin. That it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you know. And I think that healthcare issues in general have started to become a much more bipartisan issue, at least among voters. I won't say among politicians, but among voters. So I think I think the way that we continue to do it is to focus on common sense issues, not extreme issues, not take extreme positions, and um, recognize that, I mean, speaking for myself, I will say that I, I, I am, I think, widely regarded as a pro-business Democrat, and I, I wear that label proudly. I think we need more of that. We, you know, people who want to run for office on the Democratic side have to recognize that business is not our enemy. Without businesses, we don't have jobs, and we've got to support the businesses as well as the workers. So yeah, increasingly uh, in the fall, our, our numbers of listeners from the D.C. area shot up. And anecdotally, I've heard a lot, you know, from the, the kind of Capitol Hill ecosystem as Pennsylvania is <laughs> the center of the universe. So let's end on a policy note. You've uh, devoted such an incredible amount of energy and perspective and time on foreign policy. And then, as you were alluding to, uh, on education and workforce development issues. So with an eye to the next Congress, uh, if you're willing to share, are you, you going to aim for new committee assignments? Or are you going to stick with your current committee assignments? How are you going into uh, January looking? I, I won't make any secret of it. I, I've had a marker in for the Energy and Commerce Committee, which is a select committee. I believe Mike Doyle, who was also, is also from Pennsylvania, is retiring. And so our region it has an open position on energy and commerce. And I believe I'm the next person in line. A lot of that will depend on the ratios between Democrats and Republicans, which haven't yet been decided. But but I have ambitions for that. Having said that, the Foreign Affairs Committee remains very, very important to me. And I will make every effort to wave on to foreign affairs, which is, and for your listeners, that means that I don't have, I wouldn't have the seniority on foreign affairs that I currently have. The case has been made to me by the chair of foreign affairs, Greg Meeks, that if I make foreign affairs my main committee, I will be on the top of the dais by me because of the departure of uh, several members and the fact that I'm fairly high up in seniority on that committee. And that's a hard thing for me to give up. I just want, want to say on, on foreign affairs, I do believe that foreign affairs are American affairs and it touches everything. It's not just about the war in Ukraine, but it's also about diplomacy and and trade issues and export import and all kinds of things that really do affect my district in a very substantive way. Having said that, assuming I get those two as my, you know, top priorities, I will have to give up the Science, Space and Technology Committee, which I just took on this term, and Education and Labor, which I've been on since the beginning. I will always be a pro-education, pro-labor member of Congress. So I intend to continue my work in education and labor, uh, whether I'm on the committee or not. Well, Congressman, thanks so much for your time. One month after, uh, you know, really a historic election and uh, uh, congratulations again. 
Thank you so much, Ari. Great talking to you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Take a minute and leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform. Please also consider following us on social media for updates and announcements regarding future episodes and new guests. You're political, so I am sure that you're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. We are too at PA Political Podcast. Visit our website, PAPoliticalPodcast.org, and send us your feedback about this episode and suggestions on future guests. Until next week.